Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Since starting this ministry almost 10 years ago, I've learned so many things and not only just about the Bible. One of the most interesting non-biblical things that I have learned in this period of time is how important communication is to human beings. Oh yeah, I, I know that scientists tell us that nearly all members of the animal kingdom communicate with one another. They tell us, for instance, that dogs also communicate with each other and with rival species in their vicinity. And one of the ways that they do that is through the use of smells. Scientists also know that many creatures, including humans, use, for a lack of a better term, body language to communicate. Some Deer, for example, will flip up their white tails when danger is near as a sort of long-distance visual warning flag. Cats will arc their back when threatened and gorillas will beat their chests to express aggression. I mean, it's a well-known fact that many animals use sound to communicate just like we do, but no other creature does so with near the same sophistication that humans do. We're capable of making thousands of different sounds that we just so happen to call words. The collection of those different sounds, the collection and of all those sounds that are related to one another are our languages. And in doing my research for this program, we've been told that there's been thousands of languages spoken through human history. Some experts estimate between five and 6,000 languages have been spoken in the history of mankind. In light of this, it seems a miracle that we've even had the minutest of success in spreading the gospel to faraway lands. You see, in order to get any point across, we must use language. 
Communicating the story of Jesus requires the use of some sort of language. Now, I I know that seems obvious, but I'm going somewhere with this. I speak to you about Christ, and you receive the message. That's how it goes every day, all day. Now, I'm not always successful in delivering the point, but at least you understand the words, and that's a great start. But what if you and I don't speak the same language? Well, if you and I don't speak the same language, and I still want to tell you about Christ, I must somehow communicate my message into your language, at least a language that you and I both understand. I must translate. And when we do that, we introduce problems. Listen, it's not altogether problem-free even if you and I speak the same language. Because as it turns out, I had to learn this story through a translation, interestingly enough. And even though we are a wretched species, we are pretty sophisticated. We are impossibly complicated creatures, if not only physiologically. At this point, I feel like quoting, in in my language, of course, the book of Psalms, 139.14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. How frustratingly true this statement is. Human beings are capable of thinking and perceiving and repeating on an extremely high level. But we must be speaking the same language first. And in order to do that, we very often must translate. And when we do, we risk losing some of the original content. Too often, in fact, we do more harm than good. There's an old Italian saying, traduttore traditore, which means, now look, I have, to, I have to translate this. Traduttore traditore means translator traitor. The Italians came up with traduttore traditore when they became frustrated with the French. When they tried to translate the works of Dante into their own language. You lose some meaning. You must be very True to the original, and that's very difficult. Listen, I know that I've been very critical over the years, but I have come to deeply appreciate those whose hard work and dedication have given us this book, this Bible, in English. And you being in time past alienated at enemies in your mind and your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. 
Colossians 1, 21 and 22. This is really one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture. In fact, I argue that it actually sums up the entire Bible. And you being in time past, alienated and enemies in your mind and your evil works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. That is the entire Bible. Now, you've heard me declare before that although the Bible is an incredibly diverse piece of literature, it has but one theme. That theme has been called by many the atonement. The atonement. As I was sharing with some Dear friends, yesterday, this is one of those words that has always driven me crazy. Ever since I became interested in God's word, this word, atonement, has given me fits. Of course, it's not what the atonement represents. And it isn't actually what the word atonement now means. It's just the word itself is perplexing. It's one of the oldest words in what we would now think of as modern English. Atonement. It's hard to say for certain, but there are some who claim that this word was actually invented by William Tyndall, one of Christianity's greatest heroes. And by the way, Tyndall is the proper pronunciation. Most of us have, including myself, in the past, used it, pronounced it Tyndale. It's actually Tyndall. William Tyndall, one of Christianity's greatest heroes, at least the English-speaking section of Christianity. And if I want to be thoroughly accurate, Tyndall is one of the greatest English-speaking Protestant Christian heroes. You see, William Tyndall made it his life's work to translate the Bible, starting with the New Testament. He made it his life's work to translate into the language of the common man in England so that it was available and accessible to all, that everyone may be able to read and study it. And for this, Tyndall was hated. He was vehemently opposed by the church in Rome. From the moment that first English word was penned, Tyndall became an enemy of the papacy, the Pope. Of course, it would be inaccurate to deny that the acrimony wasn't mutual. For Tyndall once wrote of the leadership of the Roman church, quote, Listen to this. You think I'm rough. The preaching of God's word is hateful and contrary to them. For it is impossible to preach Christ except thou preach against Antichrist. That is to say, them which with their false doctrine and violence of sword enforce to quench the true doctrine of Christ. 
unquote. That's what Tyndall said of the church. Now, this may be a bit hard to believe here in our modern times, with our myriad of translations, more than a hundred in the English alone, according to my count. But you see, 500 years ago, when William Tyndall was a practicing Christian, he grew up in a church where the only Bible that was allowed was what we today call the Vulgate, which was written originally in Latin. Latin at the time was the official language of the church. And by the way, it, it is actually the administrative language of the church to this day. So Tyndall famously remarked, St. Jerome translated the Bible into his mother tongue. J Jerome was the translator of the official Latin Vulgate Bible. Tyndall said, St. Jerome also translated the Bible into his mother tongue. Why may we not also? The church didn't allow Bibles in any language other than Latin. And when I say didn't allow, it wasn't just some petty rule. As Tyndall would later find out, it was a capital offense to have a Bible in any language other than Latin. Tyndall said, St. Jerome also translated the Bible into his mother tongue. Why may we not also? In other words, the official Bible of the church was itself a translation. It was Latin. The original written language of the Bible was not Latin. It was Greek and Hebrew. Tyndall said, why are you opposed to an English Bible? St. Jerome translated the Bible. Why can't I? Why is there such strong resistance to a Bible translated into English? Was his question. And of course, it was a sarcastic question. It was rhetorical. Tyndall knew. Tyndall knew why. My friends, controlling access to God is powerful. Deciding who gets to get close to God has eternal ramifications. Controlling access to God was the very foundation of the power of the church in Tyndall's day. No better tranquilizer than ignorance. So being a man of action, and despite the very real threat of danger, William Tyndall set out to translate the Bible into English. And you have to understand, this was no small task. William Tyndall had no previous versions of the Bible in his native language to go on, unlike those who created the very excellent later English versions, the more well-known Geneva and King James Bibles. And then on top of that, on top of the fact that there was no English, modern English language Bible available, 
William Tyndall had to do all of his work while on the run. You see, from the moment that he decided to translate the Bible into the tongue of the everyday man and woman, he became an outlaw. And he was forced to leave his beloved England because the church authorities sought to stop him. And even after he was eventually captured and imprisoned, he continued his work in the most gruesome of possible conditions while in the dungeon of Filford Castle in Belgium. Now, admittedly, Tyndall's Bible was not the first to be translated into a modern European language. Modern to the Renaissance is what I mean. There were versions of the Bible in other European languages, but not English. But what makes Tyndall's version so unique is that he actually translated from the original languages. Most of the other European editions that had been produced by the 16th century were actually translations of translations. Even John Wycliffe, who had produced a Bible in Middle English, translated his Bible from the Latin Vulgate, the one we referred to earlier. Now listen to me. The Latin Vulgate was a fine Bible. It was considered by most to be reliable. I mean, it was produced all the way back in the 4th century, and it had stood the test of time. It had been relied upon from the time it was written in the 300s all the way up into Tyndall's day, almost 1,200 years later. It was a fine translation. It was just that Tyndall felt that if he was going to translate the Bible into something useful, he would have to go all the way to the original languages. He was that committed. I mean, he even argued that English translated far better from the Greek and the Hebrew than did the Latin. In other words, there were better relationships between the English language as it was beginning to evolve and the the Greek and Hebrew languages. Latin did not have the same connections according to William Tyndall. Now I'm bringing all of this up because it relates to our earlier conversation. Translation is never easy, but add in the difficulty of trying to translate from an ancient language to a still evolving new-ish language, such as English was in the 16th century, and you have a task of almost unimaginable complexity. In this ministry, you've, you've heard us try and struggle to communicate the meanings of these many original Hebrew and Greek words. Well, today... We have the incalculable blessing of modern research tools and a great wealth of scholarship. Tyndall had to go on far less, under far more difficult circumstances. In Filford Castle, where he he was imprisoned, 
They gave him no light. They didn't allow him light to continue his work. He was bound to a post. He couldn't even sit down. And yet the work continued. All the while, even when he wasn't in prison, he, all he had to go on was his own training, considerably fewer available ancient manuscripts, and the less than accurate previous work of scholars just recently emerging from the Dark Ages. I love this man, William Tyndall. The problem for him was not understanding what was written in those originals. It's almost universally agreed that this man was an expert with few peers in those ancient languages. He knew the languages. Of course, the Catholic Church of the time disagreed. They were constantly reporting that Tyndall's work was riddled with errors. Well, the critics notwithstanding, he knew was what was written in those early manuscripts. The problem, however, the challenge, despite all of his substantial familiarity with these ancient languages, was how do I now communicate what was written to my fellow countrymen? How can I communicate to them in this new language in a way that would benefit them and in a way that was true and accurate? I'll say it again. Part of the problem was that the English language, the one that we know today, though largely the same, was then relatively new. Many people credit William Shakespeare with inventing modern English. Well, who do you think William Shakespeare leaned on? William Tyndall. By his time in England, the language was transitioning out of what some people call Middle English. Middle English was developed from the Anglo-Saxon or Old English. There were still some who were speaking Middle English that still threw a lot of French words. And ever wonder why there are so many words in our language that can be traced directly to France? Ever wonder? It's because our language evolved when the Normans went to England. Well, a lot of that transition was underway in Tyndall's day. We don't sound French. If you've heard the French language spoken, they're different languages now. We have evolved out of that. We still retain some of the earmarks of the French language. But they're separate languages now. We take that for granted. That didn't exist. You couldn't do that in Tyndall's day. It was a new language. The language of Tyndall's England was still so new that he had to literally invent words to fully and properly communicate. And not just words, but phrases too. 
In fact, some of these phrases we still use. Things like salt of the earth, the sign of the times, filthy lucre. All of those were created by Tyndall in order to communicate difficult to understand original Greek and Hebrew words and expressions. But what I find most interesting are some of the English words that Tyndall gave life to. In fact, at least a few of Tyndall's words are now so common, we don't even think about them, even though they can be considered, to say the least, unusual. Of course, atonement, the word we mentioned at the beginning section, is one of those words. Now, that one is so special, we're going to save that for later because it's actually what we're going to try and teach on today, though I must say we're running out of time. Nonetheless, we'll do what we can. So there is the word atonement. If Tyndall didn't invent it, as some claim, then we know at least he made it commonplace in Christian and, frankly, Jewish discussions. There are other words credited to him. For example, Jehovah. Though it sounds like it's a Hebrew word, you may have even been told it's a Hebrew word, but it's not. According to the Oxford Dictionary, so this is not just some little Italian boy from Detroit telling you this, the Oxford English Dictionary says that Jehovah is an English word. In fact, it's an invented English word, an English word invented by William Tyndall. And it's a very fascinating word. And it demonstrates Tyndall's genius. The old saying, necessity is the mother of invention, fully applies here. You see, Bible scholars refer to something they call tetragrammaton. Sounds like something out of a science fiction novel, but it's actually a theological term for the Hebrew name God gave himself. Tetragrammaton. Now, this very technical sounding word was developed and we must use it as a reference because essentially there is really no direct way to pronounce the actual name of God for us in English. So we have to give it a label. The tetragrammaton is a four. That's where the tetra part comes from. Tetra means containing or combining four. The tetragrammaton is made up of four Hebrew letters. Yod, He, Vav, He. It's actually, it's three letters with one repeater, making a total of four. Once again, Yod, He, Vav, He. Those are the Hebrew letters that comprise the name of God. They correspond to the Y-H-W-H in our own alphabet. Yod, Y, He, H, Vav, W, and then He again, H, Y-H-W-H. That's the tetragrammaton. Now, the challenge here is that there are no vowels in that word. And we need vowels to pronounce words in English. Technically, 
there, it's more complicated than this, but technically there are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, but there are vowel sounds. Now, that's not necessarily important to this discussion. Suffice it to say, we cannot pronounce Y-H-W-H as a word. That, though, is a biblical word. That exists in the original Hebrew. That's why we have to call it tetragrammaton, because we can't pronounce that. Well, tetragrammaton is a bit of a bulky word to use every time Y-H-W-H comes up in the text, and it comes up a lot, as you can imagine. Now, on top of that, the Jewish people actually consider Y-H-W-H to be an extremely sacred word. So they don't even pronounce it in their own language. It is not a pronounceable word. Instead, they use Adonai in its place most of the time. And as usual, and I repeat, it isn't so cut and dry that when I present these things to you, these technical things to you in these programs, it's not this cut and dry. It's not this black and white. There are shades all over the place. But in order to give you the general understanding in the Bible, when Jewish people come to this word Y-H-W-H, they use the word Adonai. Adonai means the Lord. Generally speaking, where you find the word Adonai, the Tetragrammaton was originally. And by the way, this is not limited to just the Jewish Bibles. John Wycliffe also made extensive use of the word Adonai. Again, Adonai translates to the English phrase, the Lord. If you have a King James Bible and you see in the Old Testament the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the word Lord capitalized, that's actually where Y-H-W-H existed. So that is one indication in the English King James, the King James decided to do that. L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is a compromise, if you will, with pronouncing something that's not pronounceable, Y-H-W-H. The Jewish people use Adonai. John Wycliffe used Adonai. It means the Lord. Now, John Wycliffe's Middle English Bible came before Tyndall's Bible by about a hundred or so years. Well, when Tyndall sat down to translate his Bible, he didn't seem to care much for the word Adonai. He didn't seem to feel that the phrase the Lord was in every case appropriate. Sometimes Tyndall would come across Y-H-W-H in the original language and conclude that the English phrase the Lord would not do. And since it would be similarly unwieldy to put a word that contains only four consonants, he decided to invent the word. Stay with me. Tyndall cleverly took the vowels of Adonai and then squeezed them into the tetragrammaton and thereby invented Yahweh. 
Some pronounce it Jehovah. When you hear the word Jehovah, it's just pronouncing those Hebrew letters in a different pronunciation. It's not always pronounced the same way. So Yahweh and Jehovah, they're the same word, just pronouncing the letters differently. Tyndall took the vowels of Adonai and crammed them into YHWH and invented Yahweh so we could pronounce the very important name of God. That's the story of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. That shows you how important being accurate was to William Tyndall. And thank God he was. You know, 90% of the King James came from Tyndall's translation. The accuracy of this, people ask me, why do you use such an old Bible? The King James. I've, I've been told by church people, ah, the King James is riddled with error. Not one translation in English can hold a light to the King James because it is relying on William Tyndall's very active, powerful work. Yahweh, Jehovah, you have William Tyndall to thank for that word. How about another one? Looking at the clock, I don't think we're going to get to our lesson today, but that's all right. We're having fun, aren't we? No eye rolling. No eye rolling out there. I can see you. You don't find this fascinating? God's word is fascinating. This sort of stuff blows the dust off those Bibles. It pulls it off the shelf. It makes it alive. The work of William Tyndall tells you that this book is important. People were willing to die for this program. I couldn't do this without William Tyndall's work. I don't speak Latin. I don't speak Greek. I don't speak Hebrew. I speak English. He spilled his blood in a gruesome way. We'll get to that one of these days, I think. I think I've decided to do a series on the Reformers, the Church Reformers. William Tyndall plays a very big part in that. When you see what people go through, what they endured to make God's word real. Doesn't it make you pause? When somebody's you're walking down the street and you see somebody staring very hard at something, they're staring very hard, they're very intent, it doesn't look like they know what's going on around them, doesn't it make you stop and see what is it that they're looking at? Don't you get curious about why someone finds something so fascinating? Doesn't it make you wonder why William Tyndall gave up literally his life to make this possible for you and me? Listen. 
When you love someone, don't you want to know everything about that person? Where they were born? Do they have any siblings? Where that scar came from, from underneath their eye? We dig through these things. We go through all these details to learn as much about God as we can. We don't want to leave any of this to chance, do we? Do we want there to be any misunderstanding between us? I love him. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. Somebody tells me that God is mean and he's, his wrath is going to pour on the earth and he's going to burn every sinner. Wait a minute. I want to verify that. Just because you told me that, I want to find out. We go through these things so that we can be sure what God is really like, not what we heard he was like. William Tyndall's helped us to do that. And he's changed the world. He certainly changed our language. We've already talked about a couple of words and phrases that William Tyndall invented that we still use 500 years later. How about another one? you like this one. I don't think it takes any scholar, professional or not, very long to realize how unique Judaism is on the face of the earth. True Hebrew Bible Judaism. Theologians try to tell us that the religion of the Hebrew Bible is just a different expression or some sort of modification of the predecessor systems of religion that existed in Canaan before the Israelites arrived. In other words, theologians tell us, well, the Israelites, the, the way that Jewish Bible was written wasn't written by God. People wrote that book and really all they did was take the practices of the people in their region, molded them, changed them a little bit, and then they called them Judaism. Not true at all. Absolutely untrue. If you take the time to study, there is nothing like the religion of the Hebrew Bible. Not in the region, nowhere in the world. But that actually happens to be another challenge for people like Tyndall, for anyone who's tasked with trying to communicate the concepts and terms and purposes of the true practice of Judaism from its ancient records to a modern language. There's nothing like it. I can't compare it to anything. That's what Tyndall is saying. Tyndall had to try and faithfully capture Hebrew legal and religious terms that had few English counterparts. Nothing existed that he could use as a comparison. For instance, consider the record of the seven feasts of Israel, a topic that we happen to cover with regularity on this program. Well, the first festival mentioned in Exodus in the original Hebrew is called Pesach. You've heard me say that before. The original Hebrew word for the first of the seven feasts is Pesach. The Wycliffe Bible 
the one predecessor to the Tyndall in the Middle English, in an English-like language. The Wycliffe rendered Pesach, Pasch. In his translation, as did many others, Pasch is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew letters. Pesach became Pasch in Wycliffe's Bible. Many other European language Bibles did something very similar. For example, the Greek word, the Greeks used the word P-S-A-Q, Pesach. The Latin used P-H-A-S-E, Faz, or P-A-S-Q-U-A, Pasqua. Martin Luther used P-A-S-S-A-H. All of those words sound very much like Pesach. It's just transliteration. It's just taking the word, jumble the letters a little bit, so it sounds like one of our words. Tyndall did not seem satisfied with creating yet another meaningless jumble of the original. He saw something in the original that meant something, and he didn't want the meaning to be lost in a jumbled scrabble of letters. Because he knew that the Hebrew word for the festival, as well as the lamb that was sacrificed at the festival, again, that word being Pesach, is actually formed from a Hebrew verb, Pasach, which means, now get this, to hop, to skip, or to leap. The foundation of the word Pesach is a verb called Pasach, which means to hop, to skip, or to leap. There is that meaning in that word. That meaning is only obvious if you speak Hebrew. So jumbling up the letters to make Pasch, that doesn't translate over. Tyndall wanted you and I to understand what that word means. It means to leap, to hop, to skip. Now, when we study the context in which the word was being used for the festival, that festival commemorating what happened in Egypt, Tyndall decided he must invent a word. And you know what word he invented? Passover. Again, you would think that's a Hebrew word. It's not. It's an English word that literally means pass over because the original means to hop, to skip, or to leap. Pass over. As you know, the Passover happened this way. Exodus 12, 11, And thus ye shall eat it, meaning the lamb, because the lamb is also, by the way, called Passover. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The word Passover describes what God did. God decided to pass over the Israelites to spare their lives because they were being obedient. That's the meaning of Passover. God's judgment will pass over you if you are obedient. How do you get that with the word Pasch? You don't. 
How do you get that word, get that meaning from the word Pasqua? You don't. Tyndall wanted you to know what that meant. He said, the lamb was called Passover that the very name itself should put them in remembrance what it signified, unquote. Very clever, very meaningful, very purposeful. Tyndall felt that this word in the original was too important and too descriptive to take lightly. Transliteration, as I said before, simply moving the word from one language to another, modifying a bit so it sounds better, did nothing to enhance the Bible reader's understanding of this most important event in the history of God's people. Tyndall invented the word Passover to tell you a story. Genius and thoughtful, don't you think? It shows the heart of a man that loves you and I. 500 years ago, he loves us so much that he wants us to love God. He loves God so much that he wants us to love God. But you know, God has a, a very funny way of reminding us that there is but one perfect human being and that all the rest of us are susceptible to error. Listen to this. The word Passover is an example of the immense depth of understanding that William Tyndall had of the Hebrew language. Not only that, but it's a testament to the fact that he was a remarkable communicator that we quite rightly respect and adore these many centuries later. But we must remember he is as imperfect as the rest of us. Let me explain. You see, inexplicably, when Tyndall wrote his New Testament, he did not use the word Passover in all of the appropriate places, only twice. Now that alone was bad enough. That alone was bad enough that he did not make use of the word Passover. It wouldn't have been so bad if he had followed along with the other European languages and just used some form of the original, Pasch, Pasqua. That wouldn't be as bad as what he actually did. If he had only followed suit in his New Testament version. Instead, and I can't explain it, and I don't know why, but Tyndall decided to use the word Easter. It's impossible to explain from an academic perspective. 
the great English translator, was so dedicated to remaining faithful to accuracy in an objective sense, meaning appearing to choose accuracy over tradition. But here, in my opinion, he fails miserably. In the places in the New Testament where his brilliant word Passover would have been perfect, Tyndall instead used the dreaded word Easter. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, what's wrong with Easter? I love Easter. Well, I do not love Easter. How dare you? Don't you love the resurrection? Of course I love the resurrection. What does that have to do with Easter? I do not love Easter. Okay, some of you may be confused. Listen to me. Most of the traditional celebration of Easter has nothing to do at all with Christianity. Most of the traditional celebration of Easter, including the word Easter, is pagan in her origin. Let me ask you, what in the world do bunnies and duckies and eggs have to do with Christ? Don't worry, I'll answer that. Nothing. What in the world does the word Easter have to do with Christ? Again, I'll answer, nothing. In fact, the word Easter is derived from the word Eoster. Eoster is the name of the Anglo-Saxon and therefore pagan German goddess of fertility. You see, the, the pagans would hold festivals in the honor of Eoster about the same time that the Pasqua, the Passover, should have been celebrated. And the early Christians came along and, well, they simply co-opted those festivals, gave them a Christian halo, and claimed they were actually in honor of Christ. In fact, to this day, we have retained the fertility symbolism of the original pagan celebrations. And that, by the way, my friends, is why there are bunnies and duckies and eggs on Easter morn, all being obvious symbols of fertility all hearkening back to the fertility goddess of paganism. Now, listen, we're not here to debate. Some argue this point. But I'm here to tell you the word Easter is a pagan word, and that's what makes Tyndall's use of it so difficult to understand. I'm certain he knew the origin of the word. In fact, it was one of his own countrymen, the Venerable Bede. He was the Venerable Bede was the one who made the earliest recorded connection between paganism and the word Easter, and he did that 800 years before Tyndall's Bible was written. Tyndall must have known that. The only possible explanation is tradition. After all, William Tyndall was a trained churchman. Though he spent most of his life working to reform the church, let me tell you, some habits die hard. 
Now I took this little side road to warn us all. We must all be careful about holding too tightly to man-made religion. It can very often get in the way of our efforts to live for Christ alone. Enough of that. Let's just do one more. We'll get to our regularly scheduled lesson next time. Looks like we've got a series on our hands. Now, this next word that William Tyndall invented has the unique distinction of not only becoming a biblical word, but a regular everyday word, which kind of makes me chuckle when I think of Bible haters using Bible words, though they don't know it. As you are aware, the Old Testament, mainly the book of Leviticus, lays out a very specific system of offerings. Now, you may be asking why. Why is there a list of procedures for offerings? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, the offerings demonstrate that God requires the removal of sin before mankind is allowed in his presence. That's number one. Number two, the system of offerings was laid out in Leviticus to point to the work of Christ. No time to prove either of those today. Now, one of the most important of all feasts to the ancient Jewish people, and frankly to us today, is called in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. That is, you've heard, of course, of Yom Kippur. That is actually Hebrew, more or less. It's not such an obscure term, though it be Hebrew to you and I, especially regulars to this program. We speak of Yom Kippur Quite often, yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur comes from the Hebrew word kafar, which you'll learn a lot more about in subsequent lessons. But kafar means covering. The literal translation of Yom Kippur is the day of covering. The Geneva Bible calls it the day of reconciliation. The Bishop's Bible refers to it as the Day of Reconciling. The Wycliffe Bible calls it the Day of Cleansings. But from the Tyndall Bible all the way through to the latest versions of the English Bible, it is called the Day of Atonement. Now, what I find even more fascinating is that modern English-speaking Jews call it the Day of Atonement. You remember the, the word atonement from earlier, right? We started out this lesson with the intention of talking about it, but we got lost along the way somehow. I'm hoping it was an interesting diversion, but nonetheless, this word atonement was my target for today. We just never got there. We will, as I said, get into greater detail in another lesson. But the reason why I said I'm fascinated that modern Jews use this word to describe their solemn feast day is because atonement is another of Tyndall's invented words, as I've said. And yes, I've also said it's arguable that he invented it. It's arguable that all words are invented. But few words that are invented can be traced to a single source with a stated purpose. 
William Tyndall was a Christian scholar. And I will argue in another lesson that the word atonement actually does not do a very good job of expressing the original Hebrew. Yes, it works. But in my opinion, you have to squint your brain to see it. Sort of like you had to do with those weird magic eye puzzles in the 90s. Remember those? I repeat a third time. We'll cover the word atonement one of these days. Yom Kippur, the day of covering, the day of reconciliation, Dies Expiationum in the Latin, the day of atonement in modern English is a very solemn festival, the details of which can be found in the book of Leviticus. In fact, let's read from chapter 16, starting with part of verse 5 and then dropping down to verses 7 and 8. I'm going somewhere with this. And he shall take, he being the high priest, and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Jumping down to verse 7, And he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the... And then the next Hebrew word is Azazel. And one and the other for the Azazel. The English word is another of Tyndall's inventions. Tyndall, invent, Tyndall invented the word scapegoat. To translate Azazel. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. I bet you didn't know that the word scapegoat was actually first applied to a goat and then second was an invented biblical word. How many times have you used the word scapegoat not knowing it meant a goat actually and it was a biblical word? Probably quite a few. Well, scapegoat is another example of the genius of William Tyndall. Now, this Hebrew word Azazel, the reason why I brought that up, that word is a very difficult word to translate to this day. There's a tremendous amount of debate as to what it actually is. Both Christian and Jewish scholars debate the meaning of Azazel. Now, we've talked about this in our seven feast discussion, so a lot of this will be familiar to some of you. The Hebrew word Azazel has been giving scholars fits as far back as written records exist. And part of the problem is that it is such a rare word. Azazel only appears four times in the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, the reason why that's a problem is that rare words make things very difficult for translators because they don't have much to go on. They don't have much context where the word will appear. And that's particularly an issue with Hebrew because most of what we know about Hebrew comes from the Bible. And if it's only used... If a particular Hebrew word is only used four times in the Bible, then we don't have much to go on outside of it. I mean, it's much easier to communicate meaning 
when we can see how people use these words. That's why we so often, when we can, will turn to usage outside the Bible to assist us in explaining the nuances of one of God's word choices. That's easy to do in the Greek. Greek is a language that exists outside of its use in the Bible. God actually literally grabbed the Greek language and decided to use it in the New Testament. Hebrew is a little bit different. Hebrew is God's language. Yes, it was developed through other languages. Yes, I will agree with that. But it's still God's languages. If if we only have it used a few times in the Bible, then we don't have much else to go on. That creates a problem. Azazel is a very rare word. Some means some say it's it's the name of a desert demon. Some mean say it means something else. This was the challenge for Tyndall. This is why he felt like he had to make the word up. He used the context. He used the purpose. He understood what was being communicated in the Hebrew language and created a word that we could then use to get an idea of it, just like he did the other words. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon the Lord's, upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go for a scapegoat, Azazel, into the wilderness. Two goats for the day of atonement. Two goats. Now the first one is easy. It dies. It had to. Verse 9 says that Aaron, the high priest, was to offer that first goat. Offer was the word that exists there in English. In the Hebrew, it's a very fascinating word. It actually means to make. Asa. In the Hebrew, means to make. That goat was actually made sin and then destroyed. That's the sense in the Hebrew. Now, if you know your scriptures, that's a bit of a startling statement. Hebrews says the high priest made that goat sin. Why why is that so fascinating? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now, when we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Get rid of that little phrase, to be. It's in italics in the King James, which means it wasn't in the original, and frankly, it shouldn't be here either. Christ was not made to be sin. Christ was made sin. Just like that goat was made sin on the day of covering, the day of reconciliation, the day of reconciling, Deus expiationum. You can't make this up. You, nobody's that good. There in that statement in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 
are the two reasons for the offerings we spoke of at the beginning of the section. The offering of the goat was to remove sin and to foreshadow Christ. That's why the offerings were there. That's why Tyndall considered this extremely important. There were two goats. Well, what about that second goat? The one that Tyndall called the scapegoat. The first one was made sin, but there are two goats. What's the second goat for? What is a scapegoat? Does anyone know the definition of that now common English word? Again, don't worry about it. I'll read it to you. A scapegoat is, according to Webster, listen to me, a scapegoat is defined as one that bears the blame for others. Is that how you use the word scapegoat? Of course it is. A scapegoat, when you use the word scapegoat, you mean someone that bears the blame for others. That's Tyndall's word. Tyndall invented that word, not so you could use it generally speaking. Tyndall wanted you to use that word in reference to Christ. Because that second goat, as well as the first goat, represents the work of Christ. Christ died, and then he was made sin, and he died, and then he was made sin and led off into the desert by a fit man never to be retrieved. Don't let anyone take your sins off the cross. They're gone. The scapegoat took them. You know that on the Day of Atonement, they led that goat off into the wilderness never to return. A picture of Christ bearing your sins away. That goat didn't come back. That's why he was led into the wilderness. John, what's the point of this lesson? You know, I don't really know. I started down a rabbit hole and now I'm stuck. That's okay. At least we're learning something. You didn't know some of this before, did you? Listen, if you ponder what we've spoken of today, I'm convinced it will help you in your pursuit of knowing God better. Scapegoat is what Tyndall called that second goat, but is it accurate? Hang with me. We're close to the end. Listen to me. Tyndall's reason for inventing and then using the word scapegoat is actually based on Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Here, Tyndall actually referred to the Vulgate. But this is great. The Latin phrase found in the Vulgate version of verse 8 of Leviticus 16 is capro emissario. That's what the Vulgate calls the scapegoat, capro emissario. A capro emissario means goat emissary. That literally means goat emissary. That's the word the Latin used in verse 8 of Leviticus 16. But the goat on which the lot fell to the capro emissario, the goat emissary, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a goat emissary, capro emissario, into the wilderness. 
that goat was an emissary. You know what an emissary is? An emissary is defined, listen to me again, as one designated as the agent of another. A capro emissario is literally translated the goat designated as the agent of another. Sounds like a scapegoat to me. There's so much more I want to talk about, but I think we should close before our brains explode. Why do we do this? Why do we approach the Bible as if we're not satisfied with what we've read? Why do we act as if there's something more than we've been told? Well, frankly, because there is. There is so much more than what we've been told. I think you've discovered that by now. At least I hope you have. I hope that you see that there's no way that God's word can be easily understood if we take it as casually as we've been taught it. Listen, this is the mind of God. This is the message of God. An infinite being trying to relate to his children who are decidedly finite. And you can't do that by glossing over it for 10 minutes a week and expect to mine its true depths. I know that I'm taking a risk. It's risky to open up God's word to contemplation and meditation, and that's what the church thought in Tyndall's day. They thought it was ridiculous to allow every day people to make a decision about what God's word actually says. As we've said, there are lots of questions surrounding scripture. There are lots of challenges to full understanding. You know, John, the Bible is full of contradictions. Ever heard that? Has anyone ever told that to you? Of course you have. Of course they have. And it's usually, you usually hear that from someone who doesn't know a thing about the Bible. They're just repeating what they've been told. People love to say the Bible is imperfect and riddled with errors because that allows you to ignore it. Claiming that there are contradictions relieves the conscience. If a part of the Bible makes us feel uncomfortable about ourselves, well, all we have to do to ease our discomfort is just assume that's one of those contradictions I've heard so much about, but never investigated. Yes, I know a thorough examination of God's Word sounds scary and risky. Yes, I know on top of the enormous challenge of trying to understand an unlimited God with a limited intellect, we have that old SOB Satan spewing his lies and discouragements and sarcasm. Hey, if God really loved you, he wouldn't make it so hard to learn about him. My best advice is 
to echo the words of James, the martyred brother of Jesus. He said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We go through this. We expend so much agonizing effort to understand God for one reason. We love him. We love him. And we want to know him better. Even if that means I have to change my life. Which it does mean. We love him so much. We think others should love him because we know that's what he would love. We want to get to know every little bit about him because the more we learn the more we discover how completely worthy of our love he actually is. If God's word is drudgery for you, then might I suggest there's something wrong with you. Oh, you may say you're a Christian, but if he doesn't delight you, well, I'm going to echo another one of our Lord's relatives, his cousin John the Apostle. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, 3. God's, if God's word is grievous to you, if it causes you distress, if you hate God's word, if you disregard God's word as being unevolved, you have to ask, how much do I really love him? Now, I know this is probably why this ministry has never been very successful in the eyes of the world. We're thankful for the few regular faithful friends that we have. But you know, we have those faithful friends because they love his commandments like we do. Listen, the world doesn't even like the word commandment. It sounds too restricting. It sounds too authoritarian. Well, so be it. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And because it's forever settled in heaven, it's going to take us forever to fully study. Sounds like a beautiful, lovely, eternal sentence to me. How about you? Next week, we continue our series on the Word Atonement. Please join us. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search Scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.